Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here remotely with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris. I'm a comedian, a filmmaker, and my parents' second favorite child. <laughs> that is possibly the truest introduction you've given. Um, shout out, shout sadly. out to my brother Max, the favorite. <laughs> yes, yes, shout out to Max. Uh, so in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 1996. And in this episode, we're looking at a notable filmmaking debut. And we had a lot of really strong options for this one and decided to go with a favorite of Jason's, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. I think so, it had to be this one. What were the other choices you were thinking about? Well, I know we talked about another Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, Hard Eight. I think we talked about the Wachowskis' uh, Bound. And I think there were a few others. Those, I think, were the top two uh, like other options that we almost went with. I don't know who any of those people are, so I think... <laughs> <a good show. laughs> uh, I, I, per I personally love those other movies and not so much Bottle Rocket, but I don't disagree that it is the right choice. Wes Anderson is a huge deal, is a major filmmaker, and this movie is what kicked it all off for him. So I am on board with discussing Bottle Rocket. And it's, it's, a, I, you know, I think we could even call this like sort of, even though Wes Anderson has become a major, major filmmaker, this movie is sort of a cult classic in a way, because it's not as widely appreciated as his other movies. So it certainly has that going for it as well. And it was not a success at the time that it was released. It uh, kind of built up anticipation. I guess you could say it was based on a short film that Wes Anderson made in 1992 with uh, the Wilson brothers, Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, also the co-writer. And that movie played at the Sundance Film Festival in 1994. It made uh, the rounds on a lot of festivals, got a lot of acclaim, and based on that, got attention from uh, James L. Brooks and uh, L.M. Kit Carson, both of whom came on as producers to make this larger version, the feature version happened. It was picked up by a major studio. Wes Anderson got a $5 million budget, which in 1996, I mean, that's a pretty substantial indie budget. So this was a big debut for him. And then it came out and it grossed uh, $560,000 on its $5 million budget. It was a flop. It really was. I mean, they never put it in more than 40 theaters at a time. So, you know, um, it was a flop certainly uh, partially because of that release, but certainly partially because it just didn't catch. It didn't spark. But then I, I think what did it was of course the video store boom and all the critical and industry people just loved this movie at the time, including Martin Scorsese, who ranked it as the seventh best film of the 1990s. So um, you would think <laughs> if a movie, you know, is uh costs 5 million and makes, 500,000, one-tenth of it back. That's the end of a career right there. But uh, Wes Anderson, he continues to defy the odds, Josh. He does. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that you're absolutely right. People found it later on. It continued to build. I mean, much like the short film playing on film festival circuit for two years, you know, it built up that acclaim. Everyone who rented it in a video store or uh, heard about it from a friend or something so that by the time Wes Anderson came around to making another movie, he was just as promising, I guess, as he had been. He wasn't la labeled like the promising filmmaker who had a flop. He was labeled the filmmaker who was still promising. But in the immediate release of this movie, it definitely did not do, I think, what they were hoping for it to do. You know, um, the, the three of us, we have a film that's been on the circuit for over a year, and we have had uh, uh, no, no financial uh, offers for our feature. So <laughs> yeah, sadly, sadly, no major producers are coming to make the uh, Rick Thunder look back tomorrow feature film. <laughs> we're we're here, we're here, but we're here for you, James Brooks. Come on, baby. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, it did win, and I remember actually, uh, for me, it, it came on my radar because Wes Anderson won Best New Filmmaker at the MTV Movie Awards, which is really the only 
major or even minor award that this movie won. And I was certainly like an avid viewer of those awards <laughs> back in 1996. And, you know, they were, we, we just mentioned in our last episode about Independence Day, you know, they gave a, like a best kiss award to Will Smith and Vivica Fox. And that's the kind of thing that the MTV awards are known for is giving these big popcorn movies awards for silly things. But I think when they gave that award to Wes Anderson, I was like, oh, this is something kind of cool and under underground that I should check out. And I think I probably wasn't the only one who was maybe influenced by MTV and came to the movie that way. Do you remember how you first heard about it, Jason? I do remember that, Josh. Uh, and some of the other winners, Josh, from, uh, from those MTV Best New Filmmakers included John Singleton and uh, Steve Zalion, Doug Lyman, who we're going to talk about later in this season. Guy Ritchie, Spike Jones, Sophia Coppola, uh, Christopher Nolan. So it's a it's a who's who, you know. The only legit award that they give out on that show, apparently. <laughs> right. And I remember him getting it, but that's not how I I had already heard about it either in like from like reading Premiere magazine or Ooh. I know Jim Carrey cast uh, Owen Wilson in the Cable Guy based on this movie, and I knew I knew about it. I don't know why I knew about it, but I was definitely an early adapter to this film. Yeah, well, and I will say that that I'm not sure which came first, but the other main reason that I knew about this movie was from you, that you told me about it and how much you had loved it. And I think between that and the MTV award, I was excited. I thought, oh, this is a movie I got to check out. And I remember renting it from Blockbuster and being excited to kind of discovering this cool semi-underground thing. And I fucking hated this movie the first time I saw it. And, and I uh, think I remember I think I remember going back to you and being like, what the hell did you tell me to watch? I think I remember that too, but uh, I must have recommended this. Uh, I remember when Dave, when we did season two and we were talking about the 10 and how Dave said that uh, he and Gina, when people come over, they were like, you got to watch the 10 with us. You got to watch the 10 mm -hmm. with us. And you had a similar reaction to most of the people who watched the 10 with Dave when I recommended Bottle Rocket to you. But uh, I definitely remember recommending this to you. My old friend Jay Gruber and I watched it together. I, uh, I recommended this to a lot of people. I, I discovered it, like I said, early on. And um, this was one of my go-to movies of the 90s. Yeah, I mean, and I think you were not the only one there. Obviously, most I think most people didn't have the reaction that I had, that people who were turned on to it by word of mouth um, were, uh, like, enjoyed it, you know, were, were excited to discover it. So that was certainly a way that the, the word spread. And what about um, uh, Dave? What about Dave? What was your first recollection of this film? I remember watching Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums first. Uh, I hadn't even heard of it i didn't know that he had an earlier movie and then found out about it and was like i can't believe there's one i haven't seen yet and this was like right around uh life aquatic maybe when i finally did get to see it and i didn't like it very much but it's always been on my list to rewatch because i kind of wonder if maybe i you know just wasn't in the right space for it at the moment when i watched it because I, i've always wanted to go back to it you know i i am a fan of wes anderson otherwise yeah but i would say and i i know we'll get to this in the next segment this uh of all the films that we now think of as wes anderson type movies this is mm -hmm. the least wes anderson-y of all the movies sure I'd say. yeah uh -huh. no i absolutely agree and i was i was especially struck by that watching it again because of course the first time i saw it i had no idea what to expect from a Wes Anderson movie, but now that's really ingrained in, in, you know, in pop culture. And, uh, it was surprising to me to realize how not similar this is to his later films. Uh, and when, I, when I was in film school, which was just a couple of years after this came out, we all knew about this. Like when Rushmore came out, we were all ready for Rushmore because of, uh, Wes Anderson and bottle rocket. So um, you know, it's interesting how uh, it travels differently in, in different circles. Yeah, I mean, this absolutely seems like the kind of thing that would be a film school favorite. And also just because of the way it was made. You know, these are college friends and they make a little short and then it gets picked up by a big producer. I mean, I think this has the trajectory that every film student hopes that they will be able to follow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> no, I'm not I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm saying that that that's it's it's something to aspire to and that right. it, people admired it um right. that's not bad at all but yeah i mean napoleon dynamite similar trajectory where it's a short 
plays Sundance becomes a feature. But go on, Josh. Oh, no, I was just going to get I'm going to get to the critics here who liked it. But I was I thought the critical reaction would have been a little more like universally positive. And it was it was positive, but a little mixed. So uh, we'll start with Roger Ebert, who actually was not really a fan. Uh, He said, Bottle Rocket is entertaining if you understand exactly what it is. If you see it as a film made by friends out of the materials presented by their lives and with the freedom to not push too hard, its fragile charm would have been destroyed by rewrites intended to pump it up or focus it. It needs to meander, to take time to listen to its dialogue, to slowly unveil character quirks, particularly Dignan's, that's Owen Wilson's character. It's the kind of film, in fact, that a festival like Sundance is ideal for. An audience that knows about the realities of low-budget independent filmmaking will probably find a lot of qualities in here that might elude wider audiences. I can't recommend the film. It's too unwound and indulgent, but I have a certain affection for it, and I'm looking forward to whatever Anderson and the Wilsons do next. And I, I think, I didn't look this up, but I'm pretty sure that Roger Ebert became a big fan of Wes Anderson after this and, and gave his subsequent films positive reviews. This is but, the least the least indulgent of every Wes Anderson. Right. Well, yeah, of course you don't you don't know that at the time, but yes, you are you are absolutely right about that. Um other other crit- critics were more positive. Uh David Hunter in the Hollywood Reporter said a marvelous debut film for its director, writer and lead actors. Bottle Rocket is propelled by a fresh approach to the caper genre with a trio of youthful Texan misfits thoroughly botching their half-baked adventures with the goal of someday graduating to more ambitious levels of criminality. Brothers Owen and Luke Wilson, along with Robert Musgrave, reprise their roles from the original short, playing likable but misdirected pals who cheerfully plan a series of robberies more for the fun of pulling them off than than with motives to get rich or cause trouble. The wonderful aspect of the storytelling is how their individual strengths and flaws lead to the film's unpredictable twists and turns. And I will say in this film's credit, it definitely is not predictable. Did you watch the short? I did not watch the short. I I was going to, I think it's on YouTube somewhere and I had bookmarked it and then I totally forgot. So did you? Yeah, I watched it. It's, uh, you know, there's some things that we see in this, um, in the feature that have already been in the short, of course. Um, it's really just the three of them and uh, the dialogue. And Robert Musgrave kind of lost over the years, right? He's done a few other Anderson-y type or Owen Wilson type movies, but he was good in this movie. I, I'm surprised that the other, I'm not surprised the other brothers be, or the two brothers became so big, but I thought he would have more uh, acting work, Robert Musgrave, if that's what he wanted. The short's fine. It's black and white. It's cute. I watched it. I would never think like, oh, this could lead to a $5 million movie of the same ilk. Right. So if you had seen that at a festival at the time, you wouldn't have thought this guy is going to be a major filmmaker. No, I wouldn't have. I would have been like, that's cool. I'm I'm interested to see what he does next. But I wouldn't think like, oh, he's got James Conn lined up for a bigger version of this. Uh, So finally, critic-wise, kind of in the middle Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, a mildly facetious tone limits Mr. Anderson's film to the lightweight, but the collective enthusiasm behind this debut effort still comes through. What's best about Bottle Rocket is not the laid-back pranks that inflate its story to feature length, but the offbeat elan with which that story is told. The big sky minimalism of the film's visual style is, is attractively spare, and the Wilsons and Robert Musgrave, who plays the two younger brothers' partner in crime, have the deadpan intensity that this material demands. Like the penny ante firecracker for which the film is named, the characters in Bottle Rocket turn fecklessness into part of their charm. Janet Maslin, always a big fan of big words. Um, hey Josh, when yeah. describing every other Wes Anderson movie, have you ever used the word minimalism? Uh, no, no, <laughs> that never would be. And again, I think that struck me about this movie that it's it's visually, I mean, it's not like unremarkable visually. I mean, he clearly has made some choices. And uh, I did notice, uh, I think what one of uh, Owen Wilson's particularly loud shirts that he wears uh, was the same in the like the the thumbnail for the short on YouTube. So obviously, right. that was a very important uh, piece of, of costume. So I mean, I think he's careful about the visual style. He's clearly chosen things purposefully. But yeah, it's nowhere near as fussy as his later films. It's uh, production design more than the visual elements because you do see a lot of um, 
you know, symmetry in shots here. And the big uh, chase at the end is, is um, where Dignan's trying to evade the cops in the cold storage facility. That's very Wes Anderson-y. So um, as they're playing uh, two, 2000 man by the Rolling Stones and whatnot. So that, that, that stuff leads into it, but I think um, the production design and the, the grandiose nature of uh, Wes Anderson after this is on a totally different level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even though, I mean, when I'm saying the visuals, I'm talking about the whole package of it, the production design, the costumes and the cinematography, the sets, ev- everything. It's clearly done with purpose, um, but it's not nearly as elaborate as we sort of come to expect from Wes Anderson in his later movies. Um, definitely not. Two, uh, two things I wanted to say, Josh. Uh, yes. Columbia Pictures, when they tested it, it had the worst numbers in Columbia Pictures history for a test screening. <laughs> I believe maybe, that. Maybe that's why it never got past the uh, 40 theater mark. <laughs> and um, Scorsese, I, I remember reading it. It was Esquire, and I looked it up again today. They had a whole piece, and it was like, who's the next Martin Scorsese? And I tried to find the whole piece, but um, you know, different industry types would say which filmmaker is going to be the next Scorsese and why. And then it ended with Scorsese choosing who would be the next Scorsese. And he chose Wes Anderson. And one of the things he said about Wes Anderson was that he's able to convey the simple joys and interactions between people with such richness, which again, I think as we move towards his later films, one of the things you hate about it is how removed the characters are from one another. So this, um, this goes a completely different way than the later films. Yeah. I mean, and I think whether you like Wes Anderson or not, he is in no way the next Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese is so versatile and Wes Anderson is the opposite of versatile. I mean, if you like his stuff, you, you know, you're going to enjoy what he does, but he always does his exact thing in every movie he makes. He has very little variety in what he does. Well, I mean, it's a stupid question, but who was the next Scorsese? There's no one. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I mean, obviously there's no one. I mean, but if if you're even, I, I think even in a broad comparison, um, who is going to have a similar career trajectory or who is going to have a body of work that is as impressive and again, as varied as Scorsese? I don't think, I mean, it would be, it would be Steven Soderbergh would be my pick, for example, not, certainly not Wes Anderson. That's a good um, pick. Yeah. You know, one, one thing though is, um, about that whole point is, uh, what was I going to say? I got, uh, I lost my point. Cool. All right. Well, in that case, let's take a moment. Jason can think of his point and we'll come back and talk our general thoughts on bottle rocket. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about the year's notable feature debut from filmmaker Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket. Which, and I remembered a point, Josh. Please, go ahead. If you're going to talk about Wes Anderson as the next Scorsese, as we had kind of mentioned here, you could say that Bottle Rocket and Mean Streets are very similar in a lot of ways. And I think that's where that comparison comes from. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I think looking at this movie without knowing what he would do next, you could sort of see that he had that potential. But as he went on, he clearly developed, even just by the next film that he made, just by Rushmore, he clearly developed a very distinctive particular style that he just stuck with for every movie that he made afterwards. Right. And I maybe that's the, uh, the comparison is that Scorsese-influenced generations of filmmakers and a lot of people mimic him and now we see so many mimics of Wes Anderson which is part of his legacy yeah yeah that's true unfortunately uh but let's <laughs> let's scale back and just talk about Bottle Rocket obviously Jason when you first saw it you loved it you recommended it to everyone that you knew how did you feel about it this time I loved it I haven't se- I couldn't tell you the last time I saw it you know uh before watching uh for this podcast um you know, it kind of gets lost over time. And Wes Anderson, sometimes I think like I love his movies so much that maybe I don't rewatch them because I love knowing how much I love them. And you could lose that if you rewatch it and it's not the same. But this was just such a pleasure to watch. I loved it. And 
everything holds up. And now I want to go rewatch every single Wes Anderson movie. All right. Uh, what, what is what is sort of your favorite aspect of this movie? Uh, the interplay between Dignan and Anthony, I think is my favorite stuff. All the weird little dialogue quirks and fun little interplays and the stuff that he gets away with, uh, in the same way that we talked about Kevin Smith, uh, leading into and out of scenes, you'd get those like little jokes in there that maybe people would miss if they weren't paying attention. And I think uh, Wes Anderson, especially in this movie, very dry sense of humor comes through um, just all the way. It is very dry. I will agree with you there. Like, like I said, I hated this movie the first time I saw it, but I think part of the reason that I disliked it so much was because my expectations were raised from what I had seen, you know, from this MTV award and from, you know, you recommending it to me and just the general sense that this was a cool new uh, breakthrough in filmmaking that I was excited for. And then I was just sort of like shocked by how annoying it was. Um, so coming back to it this time, and then also as, as we've kind of mentioned, uh, subsequently, I don't really care for any Wes Anderson movies and some of his, his later movies, I just, I strongly dislike. So coming back to it this time, I thought, oh man, I hate this movie. I'm going to just not like it at all. And, and I didn't like it, but I would say I didn't hate it quite so strongly this time. I, I tolerated it more effectively than I did the first time. And that's about the best that I can say for it. Maybe if you watch it again in another 10 years, you'll like it. It'll just keep yeah, going on. Eh, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I will say other than maybe that, that one shirt that Owen Wilson wears, I can't point to anything in this movie that I actually liked, but you like I the music. Have, it's good music. You can't deny that. I mean, that. the mu- it's not that the, the music is, is fine. It's good. Those songs are good. I didn't necessarily feel like they enhanced the movie that much though. I mean, I know Wes Anderson is, is partially known for his choice of music and the way that those songs, you know, just like Quentin Tarantino, like the way that those particular songs work with the scenes that they're in. I didn't think any of those songs like were memorable in terms of the way they're matched with the action in the movie necessarily. I mean, you mentioned that Rolling Stones song in the, in the, the final chase when they're trying to rob the uh, cold storage facility. And I just watched this movie like two days ago and I can't even recall that song. No, you're totally wrong, dude. You're a thousand percent wrong. And you, if you're going to give it to Tarantino, you're going to go back and give it to Scorsese again, who had, who was the originator of putting, you know, pop soundtracks onto these kind of modern pictures in that sense. So I would say 2000 man, I would say again, over and done with, uh, with uh, Dignan when he's kind of moving on and uh, from the motel and getting ready to get to the next phase by the proclaimers. And I would say when Anthony runs to tell Inez, about how he loves her and they played the dams uh, again alone or very memorable in my head. Excellent usage of music. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll absolutely like, I'm not trying to say that Tarantino is the only one who does that effectively. Obviously Scorsese does it really well. And there's other filmmakers who do. I'm just saying that I don't see that in this movie at all. All of those, mo- all of those songs that you mentioned, I can't recall them at all at this. And moment. I, and I'm saying you're wrong. And I just gave you the examples. Why? <laughs> Right. No, I mean, I, I obviously it worked for you and I'm saying it doesn't work for me. I didn't feel like the music, it's not that the songs are bad. It's just that to me, there was no particular connection between the songs and the action on screen that made it memorable. And I think one of the strengths of Wes Anderson is that he is always able to combine the cinema and the score or the soundtrack to make the scenes more memorable and uh, with more impact. So uh, you just hate Wes Anderson and uh, goodbye. <laughs> I mean, I do hate Wes Anderson and I think I've not made a secret of that. He's one of my least favorite filmmakers in terms of like people who have broad success and acclaim. Um, but uh, who are the other ones? I, oh God, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I dislike Wes Anderson so strongly. I almost can't even think of another one at the moment. I'm sure there is someone, but Wes Anderson is one of those who, it's not even just like, I think when this movie came out, it was like, oh, everyone loves this movie and I disliked it. But as more Wes Anderson movies came out and I kept seeing them and he got more and more acclaimed and I would go into every one of these movies 
thinking maybe I'll like this one. And and there's there's a couple Wes Anderson movies that I think are 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 all right or more enjoyable than others. But overall, like every time I go into one of his movies, I just come out either hating it or just having no impression of it at all. And so I think that's part of the reason why I dislike him so much is because as his acclaim has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, my dislike for his work has also gotten bigger. Whereas I'm sure there's other filmmakers who make movies that I that I don't like that other people do like. And but they're not just at the level. I mean, this guy is one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of the last 25 years. You know, he is maybe not he's not the next Scorsese, but he's practically on the level of Scorsese in terms of how much people like him and think his work is brilliant. Yeah, he when a Wes Anderson movie comes out, it's an event for cinephiles and Anderson Andersonians everywhere. So. Yes, yes. But Dave, is. but Dave, let me Dave, you haven't seen the movie in a while. Do you do you remember any of those songs that I had mentioned in the way they played in this film? Not really, I got to say. You stink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you win some, uh, you lose some. Well, let, let's talk about, I mean, there's other aspects of this movie, obviously. I mean, maybe we can talk about the performances. You know, this is the big debut, not only for uh, Wes Anderson, but also for the Wilson brothers. And uh, what did you think of uh, Owen Wilson as Dignan and uh, Luke Wilson as Anthony? I think this is other, I was trying to think about it. Maybe Permanent Midnight was Owen Wilson, right? He was. I haven't that. seen that. Oh, I haven't that seen ben, that. He's Ben Stiller's best friend. This is probably Owen Wilson's best acting because he's not trying, but he's still like interested. And I think as you move along, he's just like not trying, but not interested in the films, you know, and Luke Wilson, you know, he squandered a lot of opportunities by trying to be like stupid romantic leads to Kate Hudson, I feel like. So uh, this is this is some of my fondest memories of uh, both the Wilson brothers. And Andrew Wilson. This is the only uh, film all th- when all three appeared at once. Andrew Wilson, future man in this. Yes, she played. Which is an uh, ex- explanation they never, I mean, a nickname they never explain, with I, which I like. So. Yes, he plays the brother of, uh, of Bob, of Robert Musgrave's character, the uh, sort of third member of their weird, motley, uh, makeshift criminal, criminal uh, gang, I guess you would call it. They're trying to rob. They don't do a lot of crime in this movie until they, they rob, rob a, a bookstore, which is hilarious, you know, and yeah, you know, little things like the, the bags not being big enough for the money. And he's like, uh, you know, can you, can you find some bigger bags, you idiot or whatever? And he's like, don't the, the manager of the bookstore, don't call me an idiot. He goes, excuse me, sir. Do you have bigger bags? Just really funny sequence. <laughs> you know, again, the cold storage locker, which I think is a great, um, finale that's the big the big score that doesn't go well but uh what about you josh i know you're not a uh a wilson brother fanatic either did you like these guys in this one no no i did not uh i mean i'm not saying like it's not that their performances are bad but i just hated every character in this movie so much that and they effectively make these people extremely annoying and I just wanted to punch them all in the face, like constantly while I was watching in this movie. And I mean, in fact, so it's good that Dignan gets punched in the face, I think, multiple times. And, um, he, and he also stabs at Anthony in the face with a screwdriver. So that's true. That's true. But I just I mean, I realize they're not necessarily supposed to be like good or admirable people. But um, and, and, and maybe not. I, I guess they're probably supposed to be likable. I mean, I think in, in reviews, they're mentioned as like as likable, but it's OK if they're not likable. But I think they need to just be interesting if they're not likable. And, and I didn't find anything appealing about these characters in any way. I just constantly wanted them to shut up and go away. And so I think it, maybe that's a, an effective performance in a certain way. Um, I don't think the Wilsons, either of them are particularly good actors. I think they both have extremely limited range. Uh, You're right, absolutely, about Luke Wilson, that he kind of tried too hard to become this mainstream star, and it didn't work out for him. And and Owen Wilson is one of those guys who who seems like he's kind of coasting through a lot of movies, or he's just doing the same performance over and over again. Um, I don't necessarily mind them when they show up in other movies. I think they can be tolerable, but I, I can't think of a time when I ever saw either of them and I thought, wow. That was a good performance. Well, I, I think, like I said, I like Owen Wilson and the cable guy. And I love both of these guys. Uh, and I mean, Owen Wilson's fun in Zoolander, but everyone's fun in Zoolander. Sure. But um, 
I love both of these guys. I think they both hit their height at uh, in Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, and I don't remember a lot about the Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, I haven't seen that since I saw it in the theater. I certainly am never eager to revisit a Wes Anderson movie. So uh, I remember being less annoyed at that movie than I was at some other uh, Anderson movies. So that's that's about the best that I can say for it. I mean, it. I think that at one point might have been my favorite, not just Wes Anderson movie, but my favorite movie, Royal Tenenbaums. Me too. I loved it so much. And then, you know, I mean, dude, he's had in my estimation, and this is more legacy, but you probably got four or five masterpieces. That's how far I would go to say this with Wes Anderson. But, um, you know, one thing that uh, I think he does well in every film, and you can really see it here, is establish a sense of environment and place. The wide open sprawl of suburban Texas is a lot of fun for this setting, I think. I mean, he does establish that sense of place, especially the long, long time, long, long time that they spend at the motel. Um, I, I did. I saw in in I didn't quote any points in in the reviews, but there were numerous reviews that compared this to Slacker, to Richard Linklater's uh, film that had come out just a few years earlier that captured a sense of of the kind of quirky side of Texas. And and I agree that that captures that a bit. That's such a lazy comparison. They're both from Texas, so they're both the same. It's like. This is about two main characters and Slacker's about 7,000 ensemble characters. You know, that's, that's, that doesn't work for me at all. And I love Slacker and I love this film. So I, I'm just saying that was what some critics brought up at the time. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some sense of place, I guess, but it didn't, it didn't really like transport me per se. And can we talk about the love story between Anthony and Inez, which is just I would love to. so dreadful. And I just, it like never ends and it's so plotting and irritating. And if the movie has any momentum, it just kills that momentum as soon as they get to the motel. You're right. It's a hilarious love story. It's endearing. And um, it's <laughs> one of the finer points of this film in that you're seeing these two people who don't communicate in the same language, but find ways of communicating and building a romance. And I think it works just like you said, extremely well. Yeah, no, I mean, and I honestly actually watching it this time, I, I found it sort of creepy in the way that it starts where obviously she, she eventually is, you know, she's in love with him and they want to be together, but the way that he pursues her at first without, you know, the, the language without being able to communicate is, is kind of icky to me. And, and it just added to my not liking that character. He's just talking and then to just, her while she was, you know, roaming through the motel. He's following her around relentlessly. And uh, again, it, it, it shifts at a certain point where she obviously is like interested. And so it becomes a little less creepy, but I just still, I didn't buy into it. I didn't care about it. I didn't find it endearing at all. Uh, even though she barely has any lines, I found her annoying as well. So, um, and, and I just feel like if there's anything, if, if there's anything funny or entertaining about this movie, it's in the sort of botched heists and the, the ridiculous efforts at being criminals that these characters go through. And then we spend like half the movie, not even dealing with that while we have to watch him wander around and attempt to communicate with Inez while she kind of just smiles at him. And I didn't care about them at all. I wasn't interested in them getting together. I was like, when are they going to get back to stealing things? Because at least that's annoying in a different way. I like that whole motel sequence, which with Inez and all the other workers from, from Central and South America, you know, uh, where Rocky runs out and he says, uh, Jerry, tell Anthony I love him. And then like, and Dignan has no idea that it's a translation, which of course plays into the later scene scenes but i agree with you that the real fun is it rat it builds it builds it builds and then when you get to james Kahn as mr henry things just go from weird to weirder and he's having a great time in this movie which you don't often which you don't always see with james Kahn. and uh i think that whole crew with applejack and of course kumar who has become a cult figure kumar man i just laughed so much the first time i saw kumar and uh, I think he brings it every time. So, so it does keep uh, building to this nice crescendo with that ragtag crew of mess ups. Yeah, I mean, I also I feel like it takes so long to get to James Khan and and especially those other to Kumar and Applejack. You don't really know anything about them. That by the time they finally get there, and now we're going to get back into heisting, and you know, Dignan has to convince Anthony to 
you know, uh, go back to a life of crime after he's gotten these, uh, you know, straight jobs or whatever. Like the movies, like the momentum has been lost at that point. And now, now suddenly we're building to this other heist. So I, I, yeah, I just, if, if I had cared at all about what they were doing from a criminal perspective, I feel like the, the, the motel, uh, half of the movie just like killed my interest entirely. And so I was just like, when is this going to be over? Um, I just, I disagree. I mean, you know, like they pull a pot heist, they go on the lamb, they have their falling out. Anthony goes straight while Dignan kind of gets back into the graces of Mr. Henry. And, uh, you know, and then he's got to convince him to rejoin the crew. Meanwhile, we see Anthony write to his little sister to kind of talk about how he's straightened his life out and, it all worked. And then from there, when he rejoins the crew, which he does because not because he wants to per se, but because he can't let his friend down, you know, um, it, it goes to that next level. I don't know. I don't, all the stuff that you don't like, like, I don't care about Applejack's background. He's a fun, weird side character that should only be there for the three scenes that he is. And Kumar is there for the hilarity of Kumar, you know, all that stuff I love in this movie. Yeah, I, I mean, and you're you're certainly not the only one. Obviously, people love this movie. Wes Anderson has a huge following. I I don't know. I just you know I was I think I was trying. At, at first, I thought oh, I'm going to hate this, and and I didn't like it. But as I was watching, I was like, okay, well, this isn't this isn't grading on me quite as much. But I, I I couldn't find really anything to point to that I thought, oh, this is good. Like this worked well. I enjoyed this aspect of the movie. There there's, there's aspects of other Wes Anderson movies that I can point to and say, you know, maybe I didn't like this movie that much overall, but, but this part of it I thought worked or this, this was charming or whatever, but I just, no, nah, there's not anything that I liked about this movie. And you know, it's still, it's still sort of weird to me that Wes Anderson has become as big as, as he has because I just, I just don't see talent there at all. Uh, do you like uh, Taika Waititi? Uh, sometimes. And I know like there's a lot of people who are either influenced by Wes Anderson or, you know, sort of connected to him. And I know we've talked about this before, how much I love Noah Baumbach, who has worked with Wes Anderson uh, on several movies. He's co-written movies with Wes Anderson. I, I don't know what it is, uh, I, but I will say about Taika Waititi that his first film, uh, Eagle versus Shark, which actually is very Bottle Rocket-esque in that it's about these like incredibly irritating, unlikable characters doing dumb things. I, I remember hating that movie when I first saw it, and I've enjoyed his other films later. Um, I think they're more broadly comedic, which helps. I think the like extreme deadpan dry humor of this movie really works against it. And I didn't like, I never laugh at anything in this movie or really in any Wes Anderson movie. I had a lot of good uh, laughs in this and the other ones. And I think for me, Taika's two best movies are boy and Hunt for the wilder people, which are Anderson 101, baby. He's going right for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Boy, but uh I did like Hunt for the Wilder People. And I just think that's it's it's just a lot funnier. It's a lot of lot more of a jokey movie, and that the tone works better. But um, yeah, I, I don't know what else. I mean, I, I don't want to just be like this is the Wes Anderson uh hate hour or whatever. I, I feel like I've kind of beaten this into the ground, but I just I I don't see the value in his work. And so I think I'm uh, I'm tapped out on what I have to say about what, this movie. What Wes Anderson movie you said there are some things you find redeeming. If you were going to say like, oh, if I have to watch one Wes Anderson movie, what would it be? I mean, I, again, I've never seen any of them more than once, so it's been a while. But I, I think I remember Moonrise Kingdom being the one that I liked the most because I felt like there was some genuine emotion there in the relationship between the two kids. There's some innocence there that I think is lacking in any of the character relationships in any of his other movies. So I, I, you know, there's a lot of extraneous stuff and the fussiness, which I really bothers me and all the adult characters in this, that movie I didn't care for, but when it was about the kind of sweet dynamic between the two kids, uh, I remember kind of liking that, but I mean, it's been a while, obviously. I love Moonrise Kingdom, but I love a lot of his movies. Like I said, I think, you know, let's wait to the legacy, but uh, which we're coming back with, but, uh, do we want to rate this right now since we feel like we've, you know, beaten it up a little bit? 
Uh, yeah, well, you haven't beaten it up. And if you want, if you, if there's any other aspect that you want to highlight that you think is good, you know, feel free. I just don't. Well, I mean, I all this stuff, left. all this stuff I say is good. You say is, is not good. Like you say, I don't see anything funny. And I'm like, I'm laughing in every scene. I think, you know, all the things that we come to appreciate for him later, you can see in this film. And yeah, and yet it is totally different than the more removed um, nature of his later films as well. Yeah, it is definitely different. I, I will say that is one thing that struck me here is that how little it it resembled his later films in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, we can go ahead. Should we rate it out of, uh, I don't know, out of firecrackers, out of bottle rockets? Ye- yellow jumpsuits? Yellow jumpsuits. That's a distinctive element. Yeah. How many yellow jumpsuits? Or, or do you want to rate it out of business partners who are doing karate in their underwear. That's a little, uh, you know, elaborate, but I suppose that's fitting for Wes Anderson. It's an overly elaborate rating system. How many business partners doing karate in their underwear would you give this? I'm giving it four and a half still four and a half. Yeah. I love this movie so much that um, I might watch it again in the next, not day or so, but the next few weeks, you know, I, I, I got done watching this movie and I was like, I could watch this again right now, which I barely wow. ever say. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it two out of five. I, like I said, I, I didn't quite hate it as much, but I didn't like it at all. I hope never to watch it again. <laughs> all right. And on that note, we'll come back and talk about the legacy of Bottle Rocket. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the notable film debut, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, and the legacy of this movie. I mean, first of all, the legacy is, of course, Wes Anderson's career and how he's gone on to become this major, major, major filmmaker who obviously, Jason, you are a big fan of. I love him. I think he is, I guess... I don't know. Is he my like second or third favorite filmmaker out there? Maybe, maybe so. I never really put that in my mind, but he's amazing. I love, I love it. I'll go see everything he does. I probably will too, but only because I have to. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I feel like I've expressed what I dislike about, about Wes Anderson's movies, but it's, it's certainly true that he's become not only a major filmmaker, but basically like a brand on his own. I mean, I think back to that, that, what is it? An American express commercial that he made, uh, sometime maybe after Royal Tenenbaums or when, you know, even, even so sort of early in his career, but it was already so distinctive that people knew like what his kind of elaborate visual style was like that you could do a commercial that showed him setting up this crazy ridiculous shot and he appears at the end and you're like oh yeah that's Wes Anderson that's what he does right Um, and and like I said that has definitely influenced the whole generation of filmmakers that you see all these copycats now and um, that's part of the legacy as well yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the point where, and I think I've mentioned I've mentioned this on uh, on Dave's podcast, piecing it together before. But my favorite Wes Anderson thing is probably the SNL parody, the uh, Wes Anderson <laughs> horror movie, the Midnight Coterie of Sinister Intruders, which I just think is a is a pitch perfect uh, parody, and I would watch that again and again over any Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, Dave, how do you feel about Wes Anderson? I, I am a big Wes Anderson fan, just like you, Jason. Uh, definitely. If not top five, you know, top 10 for sure of filmmakers. Uh, I, I always am looking forward to everything he does. And I think uh, his last couple have been a couple of my favorites, actually. I home think, run, uh, home runs, ca- man. Yeah, he kind of, I, I wouldn't say fallen off because I really enjoyed still everything he had been doing. But, I mean, uh, he's back to the level that he was at a little bit earlier in his career. Yeah, he kind of, I'm not going to say slumped, but like, Darjeeling Limited, I think, is a good movie, but is, you know, one of his lesser ones. I didn't mm-hmm. love Zizu, which I which deserves a rewatch from me. That was that and Fantastic Mr. Fox were probably my two least favorites, but still mm-hmm. I want to see them both again. And then it's just home run after home run. Like, you know, you start here, Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tannenbaums, and then you go past that period and you're into um the uh, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think is probably the height of everything, and then Isle of Dogs. And I'm so excited for the French Dispatch, which 
you know, we're probably going to get postponed right now with everything that's going on in the world. But uh, I think like, dude, that's five, five star move, five like masterpieces to me. That, that five of them, dude. Wow. I, I'd add Life Aquatic to the list. So there you go. <laughs> Do you have a favorite, Dave, since Josh, we, uh, we you know, does not? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he does, and I, I'd probably have to go back to Royal Tenenbaums, but Grand Budapest Hotel is amazing, and Isle of Dogs was, like, made in a lab for me. So. Yeah, you and I both <laughs> put that on our top 10 a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Tenenbaums was for me. I'd like to go back and rewatch the entire canon, but uh, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, I fell in love with. That, that became one of my all-time favorite movies also. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if I if I had a favorite, like I was saying before, it would probably be Moonrise Kingdom. I remember having some actual affection for that movie in a small degree. Um, uh, Legacy wise, also, and we we also talked about this, the Wilson brothers, uh, Owen Wilson, not only as an actor but also as a co writer on this movie, and then continued to write with uh, with Wes Anderson. He co wrote Rushmore and co wrote the Royal Tenenbaums, and then they kind of stopped collaborating. Although he still acts in a lot of those yeah. films, but I'm not, I'm not sure why they don't write together anymore. I, I don't know. And we don't see much of the Wilson brothers. I don't know if Owen is just living in Hawaii, chilling, but uh, it would be, I think their, their way back would be through Wes Anderson. Yeah, I think, I mean, Owen Wilson still uh, appears in a lot of mainstream movies and he has his own kind of following. Uh, I love the, uh, you know, you see those, there's like montages of the way he says, wow you know, which is mm-hmm. like his distinctive which he says thing here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he, he has a very distinctive voice and a very distinctive look, you know, with his like broken nose that, that, uh, I mean, he's certainly a, a major screen presence, even if he's not like at the heights of movie stardom. I couldn't tell you the last thing I saw him in or that was memorable. And I think Luke Wilson was probably on an HBO show not too long ago. Is that right? Yeah. The, he, he, I know. He was on Enlightened, I believe. Okay. And uh, yeah, he's done a lot of TV work. I think he's on uh, he's on a new uh, superhero show on uh, the CW called Stargirl, where he's playing like a mentor figure or something. And yeah, I mean, he's he's settled into more of this like journeyman actor career where he's on TV, he's in small scale movies like he works consistently, but he didn't achieve that level of movie stardom that Owen Wilson did. Right. He still had a run as like, like we said, romantic lead and it just... I mean, it was like, dude, him and McConaughey, every romantic lead. And then one of them became Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, yeah. He never uh, he never made that shift. Uh, And and as you mentioned, Andrew Wilson also still works in in small parts and in various things, working with uh, sometimes with his brothers. I believe he and Luke Wilson co-directed a movie a few years ago as well. So, right. You know, he's still around. I think I saw that movie. I don't remember what it was, but I I don't either. But yeah. uh, you had mentioned that Owen, you know, was co-writing with them. And then we see that uh, Noah Baumbach co-wrote with Wes Anderson. And then we saw Roman Coppola. And uh, it would be interesting if the two of these guys got back together and wrote something again. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure why they stopped. I mean, they definitely don't seem to be like, you know, they're still friends. They still work together. Owen Wilson still acts in these movies. So I don't know what it is that prevents them from writing together again. But I think a lot of people would see that as a big event, you know, after Rushmore and after the Royal Tenenbaums, like getting them back together would be a major selling point for a new Wes Anderson movie. And he needs it because it's not like he has <laughs> a built in audience that are just going to go. See right. Whatever he does. No, no. Obviously, he doesn't need it, but I still think it would be something that would entice people even more than they already are. I mean, like we said, we're recording this. Uh, the the. Uh, previews of French Dispatch had come out maybe a month or two ago. It was actually just announced as as we're recording that it's been moved to October of this year. So we'll see if that actually happens. But that's the plan as of now. Oh, uh, it looks so awesome to me. I mean, it looks like it looks right great. up, uh, you know, right up our alley for Wes Anderson. Films. Yes, you know? it does. As do every one of his films. So uh, <laughs> the, the, the only other legacy thing I noted is that even as big as Wes Anderson is, and I mentioned this a little earlier, like this movie is sort of a cult film among his work that a lot of people even who really like his movie, like Dave was saying, you know, he loved those later Wes Anderson movies and didn't even realize that this one existed. And I think it's still a bit under the radar. And to go on mm-hmm. with that, there is an event held every summer at that motel where the love story that you love happened so much. Um, it's like a gathering, like Lebowski fest is a gathering called the lovely soiree, lovely soiree 
at the Bottle Rocket uh, Motel, which, you know, they screen the movie and have a big party. And it's really helped business down there. Well, good for that motel then, I guess. That's, that's all I have to say on that front. <laughs> Anything else you would like to add about this movie, Jason? Um, you know, don't hate Josh just because he <laughs> has some very, very Alex Jones type opinions about this film. <laughs> Alex you <know>. Jones? Where <laughs> did just, you get that? I'm just kidding with you. I, uh, this is a good episode in, one, in, in that it's one that we, uh, we're not this far diametrically opposed on most films, but I would say this is one of the big ones we are. Yeah, this really is. I think this and maybe Forrest Gump are our uh, most contentious discussions. <laughs> yeah, but I can have an easier time defending this as a better movie. I could see why you could hate Forrest Gump. Yeah. I don't know why you hate this one so much, but um, I can listen to this episode and you will tell me for almost an hour. There you go. <laughs> so in that in that case, that's Bottle Rocket. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. And you can follow us on social media. Yeah, I'm on uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Facebook and Instagram at Jason Harris Comedy and Twitter at J Harris Comedy and uh, the website go for Jason.com. It's a favorite of everyone's. Josh is on Twitter at Wes Anderson fan one. No, that's not. Uh, and then we're of course on uh, everything at awesome movie year. And uh, we're on Twitter at awesome movie pod. I am on Twitter at signal bleed and on Facebook at Josh bell hates everything. And at Josh bell hates everything.com. And you can listen to our awesome producer, David Rosen's podcast, piecing it together, which is doing some cool, interesting new things lately. Yeah, you can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow us on social media at Piecing Pod and join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And we'll have Josh and Jason back on uh, very soon. Yes, yeah. Josh. Uh, as as of this recording, even though I put up a big stink in episode one about not being on, we still haven't been on. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. as of this recording, yeah. uh, several minutes later, we still have not. <laughs> what? I don't know what you're talking about. Stop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jason, I know you're excited about our next episode. So what uh, are we talking about next? Excited in a totally different way, Josh. Uh, we are going to watch the and talk about the the box office flop of 1996. Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. Well, Richard Stanley, the original director, not the actual eventual director, correct? I think he, hold on, let's, I think he did direct it, didn't he? So. I thought he was the one who was booted from it, but I guess we'll look this up and learn all about it uh, when we actually do the episode so that we know what we're talking about. So tune in next time for The Island of Dr. Moreau. And real fast, uh, as I had mentioned to Josh and Dave, since we are going to be prepping for that, there's a great... Um, yeah, John Frankenheimer took it over, actually. Right, yes. But so. the documentary, I think, that you want to mention is about Richard Stanley's failed efforts to make the movie. Right. There is a great documentary about the, um, the island of Dr. Moreau and Richard Stanley's failed vision for this one. So I would definitely say check that out as well. So check all that out, and we'll talk about all of that next time. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. 